So when I was 19, I was back from my freshman year at Harding at my home church, River Chase, in Birmingham. And people had known that for about a year or two that I was kind of moving away from what was the accepted stance on a lot of political issues in the Church of Christ, especially South, I guess. And one of the ones in particular that people were picking on was pacifism or nonviolence or even non-aggression people weren't happy with. And so people would come to me at church and ask me why I thought these kind of things. And no matter what kind of reasoning or logic or verses I could say to them to say this is why I believe what I believe, or this is why I'm even questioning what I do believe and trying to figure it out, they would just shut it off, shut it down completely, tell them not to talk to their kids, not to indoctrinate their kids, their families with my phony religion. And I didn't know how to handle that because it was it was an odd kind of response for me for trying to promote peace and to be getting such a hateful response. And that was when I sent the message to you and Zach and Josh and a few friends from Harding to just ask how do I be elegant and keep my head and write a peaceful message to these people when they're coming back at me so hatefully. Um, yeah, and I think that, you know, first I'm just curious uh, – do you find it like there's this sort of strange uh, paradox to being someone who's sort of dealing with pacifism and grappling with the idea of it, what it means, and, and trying to live that and exemplify that, um, and that just eliciting such a militant response, the idea that, that this uh, peaceful notion could make other people just so... Um, I don't. I don't know that. I know why it evokes such a weird response from them to get so angry and upset about it. Maybe because I guess I would definitely draw a line between it and the hero worship kind of of the American military. If you're if you're a swore you're not patriotic. And especially in certain enclaves of the country during wartime, people equate being a Christian and being American and so if you don't support the American military is not doing your Christianity right, and they just don't want to hear anything that will prove or even be any kind of argument against that kind of line of thinking, I guess. How do you feel about the disconnect, or at least what I feel like can easily become the disconnect, with um, having to defend pacifism in those kinds of arguments? Like, you know, the, the way... Um, you can end up finding yourself in these heated arguments and you're sort of struggling to live out the very idea that you're defending because the polemics kind of just run away with you. It is hard because just the the very natural way to respond to somebody who's being upset with you is to get upset back. And the the tradition of debating is to do that too. So... I don't know. I'm not very good at it myself. I've gotten better at it over time and with a lot of practice. It's still something that I don't know. I don't know if I've ever seen anybody handle it perfectly. It'd be something that I would love to behold to see somebody be able to keep their head completely calm and and 
not even just keep your calm, but keep your calm to the point where the person doesn't even want to walk away from you. Because sometimes you can be so passive that they just don't feel like they're even getting anything out of it. But I want to be able to be intriguing while at the same time coming across as loving and caring. That's something that I'm still looking for, trying to figure out that formula. You're listening to an old, old story. I'm Alan Alrod. Today's episode, Turn the Other Cheek, Pacifism, Pacifists, and the People Who Hate Them. One of the things that's interesting in what Zeke told me about his experiences at his home church is that people seem offended that he was straying from what they felt were traditional Church of Christ beliefs. And what's interesting about that to us is that pacifism is really actually a root tradition in the Churches of Christ. It is a very uh, much a source um, in the Churches of the Restoration Movement. And so we thought we'd bring a bit of that to bear today with a letter written in 1935 by then-Harding President J.N. Armstrong and the membership of the Churches of Christ in Searcy, Arkansas, to the United States War Department, declaring their opposition to war and their position as conscientious objectors. The following is a brief excerpt from that letter, written in 1935. We, the membership of the Church of Christ, disciples, worshiping in Searcy, Arkansas, United States, hereby affirm that we firmly believe in Jehovah God and that allegiance to him must come first. Therefore, if the laws enacted by men conflict with the laws of God and of Christ, we must obey God rather than men. Jesus taught us to love our enemies, do good to them that hate you, and all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, even so do ye also unto them. He declared before Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. We believe that when Christ sheathed the sword of Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sheathed the sword of every Christian. Through the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit has given us this instruction. Render to no man evil for evil. Avenge not yourselves, beloved. But if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but mighty before God. We hereby declare and wish to go on record as steadfastly, conscientiously opposed to carnal warfare in all of its horror and destruction of human life, and that holding to these convictions, it would be impossible for us, without direct disobedience to Jehovah our God and our Savior Jesus Christ, and without violation to our Christian conscience, to carry arms or to engage in any conflict where we would be compelled to take human life. Well, when you're doing an episode on pacifism, it's hard to pass up Martin Luther King Jr. So we thought we would close today with a speech given by him on the merits of pacifism, on the struggles of pacifism, and on the ultimate loves that drive the spirit of the idea, that drive the action of peace. With that, 
We'll turn it over to the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. We must continue to delve deeper into the philosophy of nonviolent resistance. That is something about this method that has power. And I know that there are those who will ridicule it occasionally, but it has worked miracles in the South. It has morality with it because it gives us the opportunity to work to secure moral ends through moral means. This is the morality of it, but it has certain practical consequences. It exposes the moral defenses of the opponent, somehow weakens his morale, and all at the same time it is working on his, on, on his conscience. It disarms him, and he just doesn't know what to do with it. If he puts you in jail, that's all right. If he doesn't put you in jail, fine. If he beats you up, that's all right. If he doesn't beat you up, that's all right. If he tries to kill you, all right. You develop the quiet courage of dying, if necessary, without killing. If he tries to threaten you, all right. If he doesn't. And that is something about it which causes the opponent not to know what to do. Now, he would know what to do with violence. He could call out the state militia. He could call out the National Guard and kill hundreds and hundreds of innocent people and argue that they are inciting a riot. They know how to handle violence, but they proved over and over again that they don't know how to handle non-violence because they throw people... They try to handle it by throwing us in jail. But what happened? We go into the jails of Jackson, Mississippi, and transform these jails from dungeons of shame to havens of freedom and human dignity. I can't stop it. I believe firmly that this is the way. Now, that is another aspect of it, about this method. And people ask me about it all the time. So, what do you mean when you tell us to love these people who are beating on us and bombing our houses and kicking our children around. What in the world do you mean when you say love such people? And I always have to stop and try to define the meaning of love in this area. And interestingly enough, Greek philosophy comes to our aid at this point. There are three words in the Greek language for love. One of them is the word eros. Now eros is a sort of aesthetic love. Uh, the philosopher Plato talks about it a great deal in his dialogues, the yearning of the soul for the realm of the divine. It has come to us to mean a sort of romantic love, and so we all know about Eros. We've experienced it. We've read about it in the beauties of literature. In a sense, Edgar Allan Poe was talking about Eros when he talked about his beautiful Annabelle Lee with a love surrounded by the halo of eternity. In a sense, Shakespeare was talking about Eros when he said, Love is not love, which alters when its alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. It is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. It is a star to every wandering bark. You know, I can remember that because I used to quote it to my wife when we were coding. That's Eros. That's Eros. Then the Greek language talks about phileo, which is another level of love. It is an intimate affection between personal friends. On this level, we love because we are loved. We love people that we like. This is friendship. Then the Greek language has another word called agape. Agape is more than romantic love. 
Agape is more than friendship. Agape is not something affectionate. Agape is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. Theologians would say that it is the love of God operating in the human heart. And when one rises to love on this level, he loves men not because he likes them, but he loves every man because God loves him. He goes on with that. And so he rises to the level of hating the system rather than the individual who is caught up in that system. He loves the person and hates the evil deed. And I think this is what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. And I'm happy that he didn't say like your enemies because it's pretty difficult to like some people. It's difficult to like people bombing your home and threatening your children and kicking you about. But Jesus says, love them, and love is greater than like. Love is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. And somehow, more and more, I've come to believe this. This is the way that we will get out of this dark night of oppression and make of this nation a better nation. It means that we can stand up and allow the, allow the opposition to know that we will not accept injustice. We will stand up against it with our lives, but we will never stoop down to the level of violence and hatred. And we will come to that point when we will be able to convince him that a new world is emerging. And I tell you this evening that it will give us the right attitude. I know sometimes how discontent we get, and we have a right to get discontent, and how frustrated we get in the process sometimes. But I submit to you this evening that this way of nonviolence will help us not to seek to rise from a position of disadvantage to one of advantage, thus subverting justice. We will not substitute one tyranny for another. For black supremacy is as dangerous as white supremacy. I am convinced this afternoon that God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men and brown men and yellow men. God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race and the creation of a society. I believe with this method and this approach, we will be able to win. And finally, as we struggle, we do not struggle alone. It's dark sometimes. It's difficult, and particularly for those who are struggling in the deep south, facing all of the violence and all of the suffering. But that is something that consoles us along the way. We are convinced that our cause is right. I return to Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia, not in despair, not in bitterness. I return knowing that we are moving into a bright day of freedom. We, through our struggles, through our suffering, through our sacrifice, will be able to achieve the American dream. And this will be the day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, and God Almighty, we are free at last. Here are the bombs fade away. 
Here all the bombs fade away. Here all the bombs fade away. Here all the bombs fade away. Here all the bombs fade away. Here all the bombs fade away. Thank you for joining us today on an old old story. Our episode was produced and created by myself and Zachary Crow. We'd like to thank Jimmy Shaw for production support and Zeke Turrentine for joining us in our interview. If you're interested in reading the full letter that we read today, you can find it at our website, an oldoldstory.com, and be sure to come back next month for more An Old Old Story.